this passage in Ecclesiastes in a very timely way takes us back to some of the themes that we were looking at in the God of My Stuff series. It's all about money. It's all about wealth. It's all about riches. It's all about consumption. And so this has worked out brilliantly. What we can do, because you do a six-week series and that's fine, and you know that was, that was what it was, but it is good after a certain period of time to come back and just check in and say, how are we doing with some of that stuff? How are we doing with some of the themes that we talked about during that series? And this passage in Ecclesiastes, as God would have it, just came along at the right time for us to revisit some of those central concepts in their God and My Stuff series and to look at what God would have to say to us about our wealth, about our possessions, about our stuff. Because the quester, as we're calling him, in Ecclesiastes, has spent the first several chapters of this book systematically going through everything that he sees under the sun, all of these different activities, and asking the central question, where is meaning? Where can I find meaning? What is meaningful and what is meaningless? And he's asked, is there meaning in work? Is there meaning in money? Is there meaning in in wealth? in projects, in achievement? Is there meaning in the pursuit of justice? Is there meaning in human community? Is there meaning? And he's just gone through systematically. And now in Ecclesiastes 5, he comes to this issue of wealth and consumption. And he wants to ask, is there meaning in that? Is there meaning in having and acquiring and and having stuff? And so Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Those who love money never have enough. Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of laborers is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They can take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger." We'll look at the next few verses in a minute, but let's stop there just for now. <clears throat> Did anybody, uh, when they were young, watch the cartoon program DuckTales? Anyone remember DuckTales? With Huey, Dewey, and Louie. It was great. And their uncle, uh, Scrooge McDuck. He was like the central character, Scrooge McDuck. And you remember he had so much money that he had these vaults, the vaults of money, and he had the diving board at one end, and he'd dive off, and he'd just go swimming in his money all day. But then, yeah, some of you are nodding your head, but then at the end of the day, he would, you know, sit at his desk and be counting every single penny, really frugal, and he was also this incredibly tight-fisted guy. He didn't want to give any of it away. And uh, Scrooge McDuck's character, of course, is modeled on that Charles Dickens character, Ebenezer Scrooge, the guy who's, you know, got, got the money, but he's really uh, stingy. He's really hard-hearted. He's really tight-fisted and, and doesn't practice any generosity. I think Scrooge McDuck is like our caricature of what greed looks like. You know, you've got somebody who has a huge amount of money, massive amount of money, but they're at the same time a really miserable person. 
and they don't want to share it with anybody. We kind of have this stereotype of what a greedy person looks like, and it tends to be a lot like that. They've got a ton of money, they want more money, but they don't want to give it away to anybody. Uh, or, you, or you might think of someone like Donald Trump, who's got massive amounts of money and lives this opulent lifestyle, lives an extravagant life, has everything they want, flaunts his wealth, flaunts his, his extravagant lifestyle, property empire. Those tend to be the caricatures that we create of greed, of what greed looks like. And I think part of the reason we do this is so that we can take greed and put it in a box and say, I'm not like that. I'm not that. I'm not like Scrooge McDuck. I'm not like Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm not like Donald Trump. And therefore, I am not greedy. We can tick that one off the list. We can tick that off the seven deadly sins list, right? Might have six others to sort out, but that one I'm done. I'm good. This tends to be how we think. And so we distance ourselves from this idea because that's what we think greed is. And in one sense, that's true. That's not us. That's not most of us, right? Most of us are just struggling to survive. Most of us are just in the rat race. You're just trying to keep it together. You're just trying to pay the mortgage, keep the wolf from the door. You're just trying to pay the bills and get the kids through school and maybe look after your elderly parents. You're just trying to pull it together and keep it going and provide for your family and have a decent house on a decent street in a decent neighborhood and just have things going okay. Most of us are just in this kind of struggle to make it work. We, we don't want massive amounts of wealth. We don't necessarily want five cars and the batch and the boat and all this stuff. That's not us. We just want to try and keep it together. We just want to try and make it work. So that's, I'm, I'm not, I don't struggle with greed. I'm just trying to keep my head above water financially and provide a solid financial base for my family and for my future. That's how we think. But I wonder whether it's possible that there are subtle ways in which greed can work its way into our life. In ways that maybe are different from the stereotype, different from the, the classic picture that we have. Are there ways that greed may be operating in our lives under the radar? In ways that we're not even aware of it, and therefore we're not addressing it? I think this is what the quester is observing. It's not necessarily these overt signs of greed, but just some subtle things. And he gives us here a couple of indicators of a greedy heart. And these are really, really useful barometers, especially in view of the series we've just done. For us to take stock and just ask ourselves honestly, is this something that I can see? Is this something that I can identify in my heart? A couple of barometers of what greed can look like in subtle ways. First one is in verse 10. It's an ongoing dissatisfaction with our money and our stuff. He says, those who love money never have enough. Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. How satisfied are you with your income? <laughs> it's a killer question, isn't it? I mean, you know, of course, we all, we'd all like to earn a bit more, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong. Don't beat yourself up about that. We'd all like to earn a bit more. We'd all like to increase our earnings over our life. That's just natural. Come on, that's just normal, right? But... There's a, there's a line, I think, where just a moderate and healthy desire for our earnings to increase over time can become an appetite, can become a craving, can become a desperation and a deep dissatisfaction with what we have and how much where our earning is at and, and where our stuff is at. It, it, this is when we start spending unhealthy amounts of our time and energy thinking about how can I, ne how can I get to this next income bracket? How can we possibly, we've got to get rid of this mortgage. How, this is the stuff that keeps you up at night. This is the stuff you just find, your, your mind is going to time and time and time again. It's become an obsession. 
And so you're trying to figure out, maybe do I need to take the, the next job? Maybe do you need to go back to work? Maybe do we need to take the second job? Do I need to get a few more shifts? Do I need to take more customers, more clients, do longer hours? What can I do? It just becomes this obsession. It crosses the line of just a healthy desire and it becomes an obsession. And the same is true with our stuff. You know, we looked in our series at this relentless pursuit we have of the next thing. We're dissatisfied with what we have. We're always wanting the next. The bigger, the better, the faster, the brighter, the more fashionable, the sexier, the smaller, the more powerful, the more gigs, the whatever it is. Does anyone know the computer game, the Nintendo Mario Kart game? Anyone ever played? Anna and I love Mario Kart. We, when we were teenagers, we used to hire a Nintendo gaming console and just play that thing for hours. It was fantastic. This little cartoon racing game, we loved it. And so uh, about 18 months ago, with a bit of Christmas money, we bought a Nintendo Wii. And they're great now. You know, they've got the, the controller that's wireless. So it's just, you know, you hold the steering wheel in your hand. And, you know, as you, as you move it around, your character on screen is, is going around the track. It's fantastic. So you're just holding these things free, freestyle. It's great. But then a couple of weeks ago, we went around to Phil and Jana Rose's house. <laughs> and they have a PlayStation Connect. And now, with the PlayStation Connect, you don't even need a controller. It's just, it just picks up your body. You know, it just picks up your body outline. And so when you move, your character on screen moves. It's incredible. So we were playing, do, you know, temp and bowling, and you don't even need to hold anything. You just do the bowling move, and your character bowls. It's fantastic. I was even doing a bit of dancing, <laughs> just a little bit. Emulating, you know, you emulate the person on screen. Anna's not happy about that, but I did a little bit. And so what happens now when I come back and I think about the Nintendo Wii? It seems so average. <laughs> You've got to hold this clunky controller, you know, to hold this thing in my hand. Why do I need this brick? You know, because I've seen the next thing, right? And we talked about how this works. You, as soon as you see the next thing, you can't be satisfied anymore with what you have. Now, it's one thing to have a healthy desire, interest for, you know, uh, something that you don't have. But again, this can so easily cross a line and become an obsession and become a restlessness. You just have this restless heart because you've got to have the next thing, the next house, the next phone, the next car, the next game, the next whatever, the next thing. We just live, some of us, with a deep dissatisfaction over our money and our stuff. Is that you? Can, do you feel a little bit of that? It's deep dissatisfaction. It could be an indicator that greed is operating in your life at a subtle level, because this is one of the ways that greed can influence us. You may not be Scrooge McDuck, you might not want the vaults of money, but maybe greed is just this, this restlessness, this dissatisfaction with what you have. And then the quester gives us another indicator. In verse 12, this deep and ongoing anxiety about our stuff and our money. He says, The sleep of laborers is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits them no sleep. And, and it's easy for us to say, oh, well, that's just the rich. You know, I'm not the rich, but relatively you are the rich. We are all the rich in a global sense. And they're anxious and they're not sleeping because there's a constant thirst to have what they don't have, to have more money and to have the next thing. How anxious are you over your finances? Again, I mean, this comes out of good concerns, doesn't it? You want to provide for your family. You want to put something aside for the future. You want to look after those who are dependent on you. Those are all good and worthy things. But is there a point 
where this becomes a deep just worry. And you, your, your attitude towards your money is just characterized by worry. You worry about it. It keeps you up at night. It wakes you up in the middle of the night. It wakes you up early in the morning worrying. How are we going to get this mortgage down? How are we going to? What if? What if you lose your job? You know, it's the what ifs often, isn't it? What if this investment goes bad? What if we can't find a tenant? What if our landlord kicks us out? What if interest rates go up? What if? All the scenario, what if we can't provide for our retirement? You're only 25, you know, but you say, what if we can't provide for our retirement? Your mind goes way down the track and you start worrying and you worry and you worry and you worry and this anxiety just gets its claws into you. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're just obsessed with this worry, worrying over your money. And this goes right, right at the root of all this, right at the heart of it, is that, that we are not, and we, we don't feel able to really trust that God is our security in these matters. That God is our security and that God is our provider. That's why this thing bubbles up into anxiety. It's not really about anxiety, it's really about trust. It's really about our trust that if God clothes the lilies of the field, isn't he going to look after you? And that if God clothes the birds of the air, isn't he going to look after you? It's really about our trust in God as provider, in God as sustainer, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But our security tends to be in our money. And that's where the anxiety comes from. And that's where the dissatisfaction comes from. And the quester just exposes how bankrupt all of this is. He takes us right to the end of life. And he says, look what happens when you get to the grave. Look what happens at the graveside to all of this. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They can take nothing from their toil that they carry in their hands. You can't take it with you when you go. That's the message. And we know this. And yet we flail away trying to get the next thing and trying to get more money. Even though we know it all just comes crashing down at the end of life. There's a practice that you see sometimes at funerals where people place things on the coffin that are particularly significant to a person's life. And sometimes this can be really healthy. You know, sometimes it's a photo, sometimes it's a particular memento of that person, something that's significant to them, and it's, it's a good way of remembering that person. But sometimes it can take this unhealthy form where you almost get the idea that we're putting this stuff, whatever it is, the car keys, the phone, the, the, the beer bottle, on the coffin. We're, we're almost trying to enable them to take it with them when they go. It's almost like we're just trying to have one last crack at forcing their stuff through the narrow doors of death. We're almost just one last shot at the whole narrative of consumerism in the face of death. It, it's almost, it almost seems like a, a modern version of the ancient practice of mummification, you know, where they wrap the coins up with the body in, in the hope they take them through into the afterlife. You almost wonder, are we trying to revive that in some subtle way? But the quester observes, and we all know it, you can't take the stuff with you. And so why are we wasting our time and our energy and our money and our peace of mind with, riddled with anxiety and plagued by dissatisfaction. Because where it ends in verse 17 is this, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration and affliction and anger. That's the result of a heart characterized by greed. Not a happy life, but one that is characterized by frustration with your stuff because you never have enough. Affliction because you feel the world's against you and anger at other people who might have more or better. And ultimately, even anger at God, because he's somehow against you and hasn't given you what your heart desires. That's where the life of greed ends up. 
And in contrast to that, I don't want to spend too much time on the bad news, because in contrast to that, the quester here just rolls out in verse 18 to 20, this beautiful alternative picture. This beautiful alternative to a life of greed, a whole new vision of life. Here it is in verse 18. In fact, this is one of the passages in Ecclesiastes I think that's the most contrasting. You've got the most negative stuff here, one of the darkest passages. And then in verse 18, he's at his like peak. He's the most optimistic, almost, that he is in the whole book. Listen to this, verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for people to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God, God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives people wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their lives because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. See, what I love about this passage is that he doesn't just, he doesn't just say you shouldn't have much money and you shouldn't enjoy it. You say, we go down this track sometimes as Christians where we get the idea in our head that because greed is wrong and because consumerism is wrong, that we're almost to deny ourselves any pleasure in life. We're almost to pursue this kind of ascetic life where we just, we, we, we think happiness, pleasure, stuff is bad. We almost think money has this inherently evil property to it and our stuff is really bad and we, and we should shun it. The quester says the opposite. Yes, greed is a problem, but what we should do is eat and drink and enjoy life. These things are given to us for our enjoyment and it's okay, it's okay to own an iPhone, all right? It is, really. It's even okay to have an iPad. It's even okay to have the iPad 2 if you're about to upgrade. It's all right. Take the pressure off yourself. The last thing that you want to do in responding to greed is just start to feel condemned and guilty and burdened because you have money and you have stuff. That's not the point. God has created this material world and he's called it good. A flesh and blood material world with physicality and good gifts for his people to enjoy. James says every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who doesn't change like the shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift. It's from above. It's okay. Don't become a dualist. Don't become this kind of, oh, shun the material stuff and only embrace the spiritual. There is no dividing line between spiritual and physical or spiritual and secular. It's all spiritual. In fact, I think perhaps what we need to do is not value money less, but value it more and see it as spiritual. It's sacred. It's important. Your stuff is spiritual. makes it even more important how you use it then, don't you think? If it's got an inherently spiritual value to it. Because all things, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, all things are created good. All things God has given us are good. God's given us a good life. Man, look at, look, look at the life of Jesus. Didn't he come eating and drinking? Isn't that what the scripture says? Eating and drinking to the point that people called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now he wasn't, but you can see the perception. He enjoyed a good party. Nothing wrong with that. He enjoyed eating and he enjoyed life. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. Several times he says it. Eat and drink, enjoy your life. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having money per se. Nothing wrong with having stuff per se. It's about your heart and it's about how you use it and about how you steward it. But certainly there is nothing wrong with taking pleasure in what God has given us. In fact, St. Augustine said that created things are good because they contain within themselves traces of their creator. In some way, you know, these created things that we have, they contain in their best form, best usage, they can point us to their creator, the one who's created all things and given us stuff, given us money to enjoy, among other things. And then the quester says, as well as enjoying your life, eat and drink, 
but then find satisfaction in your toil. This is a, I think this is great. Find satisfaction because most of the time, our work, our toil, is simply a means to an end. Most of the time, the job is just to get the money so we can just get the next thing or just get the financial security. We tend to see work purely in functional terms. It is a means to an end. And one way in which we can get our eyes off this constant, restless pursuit of just getting more money and next things is that we find some satisfaction in our toil, in what you do, in your work, not just a means to an end, not just to get you to X, Y, and Z financially, but in your toil, in your job, in your work. Can you find some satisfaction in it? I know some of you love what you do. Others don't, but can you find areas in your job where you can thrive? Friendships at work that you can invest in, seeing these people as human beings that you can really interact with and get to know and take an interest. Parts of your job that you can really find fulfillment in. Using your God-given talents and gifts and abilities to bring things about, change things, make things happen, invest yourself in your workplace. This is part of being human. It's part of expressing our humanity. If you're a plumber, when you do brilliant work for a customer, you are being human. You are glorifying God in that act of plumbing. (laughs) If you're an architect, when you do brilliant drawings for a client, you are finding satisfaction in that toil, I hope, and expressing who it is God's made you to be, glorifying God in that act. It's not just when you share about Jesus with people, although that is essential, but even in the act, of doing what God has gifted you to do, teaching well, being a brilliant nurse, being a brilliant architect, being a brilliant software engineer, doing what you do well. You are glorifying God. It's a sacred calling. There is no, none of you are employed in secular jobs in this room. None of you have a secular job. You are all engaged in a spiritual calling. And when you walk into that workplace, you're walking into a temple. And it's as sacred as what we do in this place here. You're a missionary. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're a human being expressing your God-given abilities, and that is deeply glorifying to God. So find some satisfaction in it. Enjoy it, not just a means to an end. Enjoy what God's given you to do and what he's put in front of you. And finally, says the quester, accept your lot. Accept your lot. And this takes us back to that word we mentioned in the series, the word enough. Can you look at your stuff, can you look at your money and say, I have enough. I don't need to restlessly pursue more. I don't need to clamor for the next thing and I certainly don't need to do it just because of being socially acceptable to other people or attaining a lifestyle or projecting an image, but I can say enough. Yes, you're going to buy things, yes, you're going to enjoy life, but can we have a heart of contentment that goes along with that? And it's not enough just to say enough if Jesus is not enough, right? Did that make any sense? It's not enough to say enough. It begins with finding your sufficiency in Christ. It begins by saying Jesus is enough for me. It's not just behavior we're talking about. It starts by saying Christ is enough. He's totally sufficient. He is the one who has satisfied me at the deepest core level of my humanity. And out of that deep-centered sufficiency that I have in him, where I can say with Paul, Your grace is sufficient for me. Out of that, we can look at our stuff and our money, and in in regard to those things, we can say, I have enough. 
I have enough. Yes, I'm going to buy things as I need them, but I have enough. I love the words of Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. It says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. The boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. If you want a verse or two to memorize, if this is a struggle for you, if this is, this is a good verse, write this one out, stick it on your dashboard, stick it on your fridge. Lord, you have assigned me. It's, it's, the, it's the cry of a contented heart. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have given me what I have. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. I am content with what I have. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. What I've got coming in the new creation is even better through Jesus because you've promised me all things. That's the, that's the song, that's the prayer of a contented heart. And even if you're not feeling that contented, these can be verses that just speak a different word to us than this constant restlessness for the next thing and for more money and more money all the time. And you see where this life, this alternative to greed ends up? Here's the alternative ending in verse 20. Of the person who is contented and trusts God, they seldom reflect on the days of their lives because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Some people take that as a negative statement. That, you know, they're not reflecting on the days of their lives. That's, that's a bad thing. We should be doing that. But you've got to remember in Ecclesiastes, Reflecting on the days of your life too much leads to misery. Reflecting too much on the days of your life, you know, is going to make you depressed. So what the quester is saying is, as we find our contentment in God, we're not obsessively worrying about the future and, and all the what-ifs and all of those scenarios because God is keeping us occupied with gladness of heart. A glad heart. A heart that is glad because it's enjoying what God has given us because it's finding some satisfaction in our toil and because it is accepting our lot as a gift from God. This is the transition from a heart of greed to a heart of gladness. Not restless anymore, not overly anxious anymore, not constantly dissatisfied, but at peace and contented with what we have. It was St. Augustine who said to God, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless. As long as your heart is covered in greed, as long as your heart is influenced, maybe in subtle ways by greed, it's going to be restless. A greedy heart is a restless heart. But through Christ, we're invited into a different life. We're invited to find our rest in God, find a deep rest, a deep satisfaction, and a deep contentment that can bubble over into a contentment with our stuff, a joy in life, a deep, deep satisfaction with what we've had, a thanksgiving to God for the ways in which he's blessed us and the ability to say, I have enough. Don't need to clamor after more. I've got enough. I can be grateful to God for this. I can drink deeply of his grace and his sufficiency in my life and I can rest in what he's given me, enjoy it and be content with that. That's a heart of gladness and that is the antidote to greed. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would free us from this trap of greed.
And God, we just come to you now and really lay our lives open before you and ask that if there's any way in which greed's got a hold in our lives, that you'd show it to us. I pray, Lord, that you'd just shine the spotlight of your spirit into our heart. We just open ourselves up in this moment and ask that if, this, if greed is just operating under the radar for us, if it's just got its claws into us in a way that we haven't even noticed, Father, we ask that you'd reveal that to us. You just make it known to us even now. Just prompt our hearts and our spirits. Just put your finger on it, Father, if it's true of us. And if it is, Lord, we just bring that to you and we just confess that we haven't trusted you. And we want to. That our security has been in our money and our stuff. And that's not what we want, Father. We want it to be in you. We want to have our security in you, the one who who has made all things, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We want to trust you with our stuff. We want to trust you with our money. And we want to be content and satisfied with what you've given us in life. Father, free us from greed, I pray. Set us free, Lord. Any heart here who is bound up and enslaved to this, anyone who is just under this, under this curse, Father, I ask that you'd set them free this morning by your grace. Jesus, that you just reveal yourself to them afresh now. With your total sufficiency, the sufficiency of your love and your provision for our lives. Lead us in that way of gladness, Lord. Lead us into a new life. Lead us into new possibilities, I pray. Free us from greed, Lord. Set our hearts free. No more anxiety. No more dissatisfaction. Help us to accept our lot and find our rest in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.